0: Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, I'm speaking to our first repeat guest on the show, Donald Robertson. Donald is one of my favorite writers, and he has a new graphic novel coming out called Verissimus, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. In the conversation, Donald and I spend most of the time discussing an article he wrote titled... How Compassionate is Stoicism? In the article, Donald writes, Although many people on the internet confuse Stoicism with being unemotional and uncaring, the truth is it was originally a philosophy of love. I highly recommend reading the article and pre-ordering the new graphic novel. I'll link both of those in the show notes which you can get at perennialleader.com. Now, please welcome to the show, the wise and gracious Donald Robertson. Welcome back to In Search of Wisdom, Donald. Happy to say you're the uh, first repeat guest on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, that's cool. Uh,
1: well, that's a little bit of an honor for me, then. Thanks very much, you- and uh, yeah, I'm pleased to be back, and uh, looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, good. The honor is uh, on on this end. I'm, I'm happy to say I just pre ordered my first graphic novel, uh, Verissimus, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. Please correct me on the pronunciation if I butchered that.
1: No, I think that's about right. So that's your first graphic novel. You haven't re- you haven't had
0: a graphic novel before. Nope, this will be the first.
1: Yeah, man, it's interesting because it's the sort of thing, there's a lot of people that are really, really into that medium, and then I'm, I'm realizing more and more there are people that have never really read one before, so well, I, it'd be interesting if it introduces people to a new format, a new genre, or whatever.
0: How does it feel to have it finally available for, for pre-order? It's been a bit of a, a project Good. you've been working on here the last couple of years. Yeah, it took, a lot, it took a long time So also you know
1: publishing moves really slowly it takes normally roughly a year is the kind of standard to write a book but graphic novels can take a lot longer this took about two and a half years so you know that it's slow paced enough already but that, to me that seems like a, an eternity like to kind of get it out and it'll still be a little while before um, it actually hits the shelves and stuff but the other strange thing <coughs> about publishing books is that by the time a book comes out, you know you, you the author may already have been working for a year on another book. So at the moment I'm just finishing another book, my third book about Marcus Aurelius, which is a prose biography of Marcus Aurelius for Yale University Press. So in some ways I kind of forgo- I've forgotten a little bit about Versimus because it <laughs> seems like a while back uh, that we were kind of uh, wrapping that up. And yet it's, you know, I have to remember it again because it's kind of, uh, it's just been
0: published. What would you say readers who are uh, fans of your last book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, can expect from from these two upcoming books?
1: What's different? Well, like first of all, it, let's just pause for one moment over the weirdness of the <laughs> fact that I've written three books about the same guy, um, which seems strange even to me, right? So I'm definitely... Done with Marcus Aurelius for a little while in terms of his biography, at least. And it would sound presumptuous to say, you know, I'm not a historian, so I would think it sound presumptuous to say that you're a kind of like expert on a subject. But geez, man, I spent so long studying this now and writing about it that there, I don't think there are many people uh, that are uh, have studied uh, his his life uh, in that depth. Um, and also I had to write a preface for the Capstone Classics edition of Marcus Aurelius. And I've written a couple of chapters for academic books on him as well. So it's almost like a whole, like, career in itself, just writing about this this one dude. Um, so I hope he appreciates it, Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> like, so the difference is, like, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor was is pretty heavily biogra- um, biographical of Marcus, um, it's got like about I don't know a third of the each chapter is about his life, these anecdotes, and then the the graphic novel though is entirely his life story, so it goes into it in a lot more detail. And it did come as a revelation to me to write for that format. It's very very much like writing a screenplay for a movie, writing mm. a graphic novel. Um, It's very, very similar, right down to the way you would describe the angle um, of a shot, like, or whether it's a a close-up or an extreme shot or whatever. And uh, visualising his life made me, you do realise things. I had to try to incorporate, I wanted to have philosophy and I wanted to be a bit like Gladiator. I wanted there to be a lot of action um, I wanted it to be entertaining, but I wanted there to be loads of philosophy in it. And I thought, how come there aren't action? How come Gladiator doesn't have loads of quotes from Marcus Aurelius in it, right? And I thought, well, because it would be like an exposition dump or something. It would seem like you're just crowbarring references in willy-nilly, unless you somehow figure out a way to fit it into the story. And then early on, I realised, because I'd spent too much time like looking too closely at the meditations, Um Like, one of the curious things about the Meditations is that it's actually quite... uh, It's written in an artfully vague style, right? So, although, on the one hand, in the first book, he names a lot of his teachers and family members. So, one of the most important historical sources we have about his life, in a sense, is actually book one of the Meditations. But in the rest of it, he's pretty vague, so the most famous passage in the meditations is the start of book two, where he says, every morning when you get up, tell yourself you're going to meet all sorts of annoying people, treacherous, meddlesome people, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't name or give any kind of hint who he's talking about. And that's why people love it, because they think, well, that sounds like my mother-in-law or it sounds like <laughs> that guy that works across from me in the office or whatever, right? He doesn't give even the slightest hint of whether he's talking about the guy that the de- instigated a civil war against him or whether he's talking about so-called barbarian chieftains or if he has his wife in mind or he's thinking about his son or like you know there's this whole drama unfolding around the guy is literally writing this in an army camp after having met with foreign emissaries and yet there's not even a hint that that's the context that he's referring to right and maybe he's not. Maybe he is just talking about one of his relatives that really winds him up the wrong way or something like that. Or he could be talking about these world historic events that shaped, you know, the, the the history of the Roman Empire. Like who knows? He doesn't tell us often. But when we're reading the meditations, we can occasionally read between the lines and we can find passages that allude to things in his environment. I'll just pick a really random example, right? There's a bit where he says that getting annoyed with people for doing vicious things is, this is a typically stoic thing to say, is as irrational as being irritated with horses for neighing, he says, <laughs> or babies with crying. Now, if he's at Carnuntum or any of the, the military camps in the Danube, he would have been surrounded by hundreds, thousands of cavalry so, you can, if you try and imagine that for a moment, right? He's trying, he's sitting there, saying, geez, man, I'm trying to write. I haven't slept much. He had problems sleeping, Marks, a release. Maybe he got a bit of a headache. Like, he's he's trying by candlelight, by lamplight to write the meditations. These blinking horses outside, hundreds of them, like neighing, you know, their hoofs clapping and stuff like that. So, he is, in a sense, alluding to stuff that's going on in his environment around him. And what I tried to do. From the point, I think it began when I went to Karnantum, um a few years ago and I spent a, a week there um, at the archaeological site uh, and walking along the banks of the Danube and stuff. I tried to really make an effort to imagine Marcus writing those words in that environment and how, in subtle ways, he might be referring to things that were going on around him. So when we did the graphic novel, we thought, are there ways that we can connect passages in the meditations to his environment and events that are happening, which he's often using as a metaphor for philosophy. And then hopefully it doesn't seem like we're just crowbarring philosophy in. You know, Maybe we can make it seem more like he's just kind of commenting on stuff that he's actually seeing in his physical environment around him. Or when he talks about every morning prepare yourself for meeting treacherous people – you know, we if we visualise that he's been speaking to uh, client kings that have ripped up peace treaties with him, like and sprung a, spri- a surprise attack against the Romans, like it suddenly seems much more relevant to his life story. So that's kind of what I was trying to do. And then the the prose biography, having sp- you know really visualised Marcus's life from this different perspective, and and realising. I'll tell you another really odd thing. In the middle of writing Verissimus, I realised that I was, in a sense, writing a horror story, and that hadn't occurred to me before. Um, I got in the middle of it, and I thought, this seems now more like like the horror genre than I'd, I'd thought before, for several reasons, which maybe become a bit more obvious. So the Romans were kind of superstitious by our standards, obviously, and uh, a big part of the, the Roman histories is, is played by omens and dreams and stuff, which people took quite seriously. Um, so if we try and portray the content of their dreams and imagine them really kind of affecting them, and also the way that they tortured people, what Roman warfare actually looked like, and then the Antonine Plague, like it, suddenly the story seems much darker like mm. and troubling and creepy and, and bloody. Um, and his environment becomes quite different. We, when we tell the story of Marcus in prose, we mention the Antonine Plague, and then we kind of one of the the limitations of writing a prose history or biography is that you'll describe an event and then kind of forget about it, right? If that makes sense. Whereas if it's visual, you continue to see it in the background, if you, mm. if you get what I mean, right? Mm. So you'd have a chapter on the Antonine Plague, and then you kind of move on from it and talk about the Civil War and other things that happens. But you forget that while you're talking about the Civil War and all this other stuff that's unfolding, there's going to be people covered in scars, like blinded by the plague, like their, their limbs are maimed and stuff like it That's still ongoing in the background. So you realise when you visualise that aspects, certain aspects of the story are, are become much more pervasive than it seemed mm. at first. The plague in particular is just you know, all-encompassing and goes on really for um, from the, the time that it appears until until he dies, probably of the plague, and it continues probably beyond that. So um, and it's very visual, unlike COVID. Um, you know, the the Antonine plague had people dying in the streets, and uh, the you know you could see their the faces were scarred. Um, people, it's believed, maybe even smelled of the plague. Um, Mm. because their their breath would stink. Um, And so there was even a kind of odour that went with it. So it was kind of in your face in a way that's harder for us to to kind of imagine. And then when I came to write the prose biography for Yale, it was like I'd already visualised this stuff cinematically and realised things. But that required me going into the history in, in a lot more kind of academic detail than I had before. And spotting things that I think other historians maybe hadn't noticed. And, and also I, I, I thought it was a big deal when I began writing that. Like, there are a lot of biographies of Marx Aurelius actually. There are s- several modern biographies. And I thought, what was the point in writing another one? Like there's, there's already probably too many, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought, well, what I can do is try and incorporate more of his philosophy. And my argument was my pitch, if you like was if I was writing a biography about Saint Augustine or one of the early Christian church fathers and I kind of didn't mention Christianity, you'd think that was weird right if I was trying to explain why they did the things that they did and we didn't really bring their Christian beliefs into it, you'd think that that's that's rubbish like that that you have to understand Christianity in order to understand why these guys are acting the way that they are. And, you know, it tells us what their values and beliefs are. So one of the things that struck me about biographies of Marcus Aurelius is that they don't really go deep enough into how stoicism influenced his actions. Um, you know, they kind they, they of set that aside and leave it to philosophers, but it's part of his psychology. So I, I that was my agenda. And then I realised as I started writing about Marcus that actually I couldn't help but bring the philosophy and the psychology into it more. It, it started off think, seeming like something that was going to be a task or an effort, and then it became effortless because I realised I can't write. I could, even if I tried, I couldn't write a biography of Marcus Aurelius that doesn't mention how his philosophy was coming in, especially after having done the graphic novel and tried to weave these two things together. What we have from Marcus, I, I like to say, is like, in a sense, two sets of documents that are parallel but distinct, and and actually one set a lot of people don't even know exists. So I saw even the other day, um, every so often people will kind of post a review of one of my books, and they'll say Donald Robertson's made up all these stories about Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. and actually because they don't even realise how much we know about him. We know more about Marcus Aurelius than about. M- pretty much like most other ancient philosophers, maybe even any other ancient philosopher. Certainly we know far more about him than we know about any other Stoic philosopher because he was an emperor. So there are three major surviving histories of his reign. We have a cache of his letters that survive. We have uh, numismatic and archaeological evidence, including inscriptions about his reign. We have the Roman legal digests that record his rescripts, the legal decisions that he made references to him scattered throughout lots of other ancient texts. So we know a lot of stuff about this guy. I mean, we know virtually nothing but about Epictetus, by comparison. Um, relatively little about Seneca. We know a lot about Marcus Aurelius. And, uh, yeah, they're kind of distinct. We have the Meditations, which is has a kind of biographical aspect to it. Although it's artfully vague, He's he's very much it's very personal like he's taking philosophy and applying it to his own life and so sometimes people say it's like a journal a bit um so we I would say it describes it could be seen as describing his his inner psychological or philosophical journey in a way um, so it's very intimate we get to get to have a sneak peek into his mind most scholars believe the meditations was not intended for publication and I agree with that. Um, so it seems like a sneak peek into Marcus Aurelius' inner psyche. Then we have his letters, which really give us a sneak peek into into his private life. It's like a window on on the private life of a Roman emperor. It's incredible. Um, and then we have these histories that describe his actions, um, and and actually even the legislation, like that tell us you know what sort of emperor he he did he was and what actions he took. And so then the task is, how do we knit all this stuff and weave it together so that we can relate his inner life and his outer life, You're combining all these, you're triangulating the evidence, as it were, and combining all of these different sources, which is a kind of, it's fun to try and do that, um, I think. And it's controversial. Just to pick, uh, there are many examples we could pick, but one of them would be, I'm gonna, I'll go straight for the jugular here, Right. Like, so I think anyone that read this is and this is the this most controversial one, right? Um, many people that read the Stoics would think that ancient Stoic ethics is inherently antagonistic to the institution of slavery. And yet R- Marcus Aurelius was Roman emperor, and they'd be right. Like the Stoics did have issues with the whole concept of slavery. like they believed in the principle of natural law and uh, and yet they they thought that political change should be progressive the stoics were not apolitical like they were very political the founding text of stoicism is probably zeno's republic is a, a utopian political text like it's a critique of plato not only is a political text it's a, 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 part, a by some accounts quite a scathing attack on another political text on plato's republic because the, the Stoics ideologically disagreed with the political vision that that Plato painted. Why? Because Plato's society is hierarchical and elitist. Like, mm. and the the Stoics were egalitarian. We would agree, most of us, with the Stoics today. Like, the Stoics believed that women and children should have rights and slaves. Um, whereas, you know, Plato and Aristotle, like, not so much. Um, you know, they had a, a, a more conservative, hierarchical view of society. So, you know, why? how is it possible that Marcus Aurelius could uh, be in charge of a, a state that depends on a slave economy and yet believe in cosmopolitan ethics like, and, uh, you know, the in the brotherhood of man and all that kind of stuff? Well, you could say, you know, in the same way that Christians could, Why, you know, that Christians could run the uh, transatlantic slave trade, Why, you know, people kind of rationalize things. But also, Marcus says in the Meditations that he has to be satisfied if change is gradual. He believed in progressive political mm-hmm. change. And we can see from his legislative record that he was following a political agenda. Um, That involved improving the rights of women, children and slaves, which would be completely consistent um, with Stoic ethics. But, you know, also he couldn't just abolish slavery overnight because it would have caused a civil war and he faced a civil war. So we, you know, one thing we know for sure about his reign is that Marcus Aurelius had political enemies. We know that categorically because there was a civil war against him. and a number of senators were involved as well as other, Roman generals and so on Um, so he had had a powerful faction political faction who disagreed with him now it's less clear why they disagreed with him but I think if we look very closely if we scrutinise the historical evidence um, what comes out of it is that the faction opposing him were more militaristic and they believed that Marcus, ironically, was prolonging the war on the Danube frontier by placing too much emphasis on diplomacy. And they would have pursued more of a Scots-death policy against the barbarian races, um, I think. Um, so Marcus was more, ironically, of a, a, a military dove uh, compared to Avidius Cassius mm-hmm. and the faction that opposed him, who would have been more like military hawks. And the the other thing I think that if you want to know kind of realizations that dawned on me from writing the graphic novel and the, the biography, another controversial one I think, it seems obvious to me. People say, why would Marcus Aurelius appoint Commodus as his successor? And that's a complex question. I've written about it at length. You know, the first thing you need to realize is that Marcus Aurelius' successor would have been Lucius Verus, originally, and the. Uh, it, just to confuse us, um, Roman uh, relationships in the uh, among the nobility were, were confusing and complicated. So Lucius Verus was Marcus Aurelius' adoptive brother, um, but he was also his son-in-law because he married Marcus's daughter. And I think many Romans basically perceived Lucius Verus as Marcus's son. Mm. For that reason. He's sometimes actually referred to um, in surviving texts as the son of Marcus Aurelius. He was 10 years younger than him. Um, And Marcus gave Lucius his own family name when Lucius became his co-emperor, which made it look like he was adopting him as his son also. Um, So if Marcus had died, there already was another emperor. Lucius Verus in that sense would have... Uh, succeeded him or rather their reigns would have overlapped um, so it was only really when Verus died that, that uh, you know the, the question of the succession became formulated in the way that it was and then Marcus at the behest of Lucius and the senate were told uh, made two of his sons Caesar Marcus Anius Verus who is named after Marcus and Commodus would have ruled ro- jointly together on the same model as he and, and Lucius Verus had. So it was never really the plan that Commodus would be sole emperor. We see Marcus repeatedly um, having his succession plans kind of shattered and overturned t- several times, multiple times. Um, and and so the way that things turned out is not at all like how they they were planned to be. But you could say, look, at some point we, we ended up with Commodus, and towards the end, Marcus must have realised that Commodus was going to be a bad emperor and all that kind of stuff. And what I would say to that is the classic question of what was the what would the alternative be? So actually, we know what the alternative would be. It would be Avidius Cassius, like, hmm. uh, because of the civil war that tells us that basically he was the other main rival for the throne. Um, so who would be worse? Commodus or Vidius Cassius? Or would it be worse? I would put it to your listeners that are interested in the history of the subject that um, many Romans believed that a bad emperor was better than a civil war. Mm. I think that's something that's hard for us to imagine today because we have this kind of great man theory of history. We think there's good emperors and bad emperors. If you lived in the provinces. If you lived in Britain, do you think you'd really give two hoots who was the emperor at Rome? Not really. Like You'd think it didn't really have that much effect on you. Um, but particularly if you lived in the east of the empire, like you would care if there was a civil war. And the population at Rome would care if there was a civil war. If there was a war on the frontier, it didn't necessarily affect the population at Rome that much, but if there's a civil war, like well, it potentially did because Rome itself could be sacked, um, the empire would be torn apart.
0: It's an interesting point around something you bring up just now, but also you mentioned the idea of change. I find it fascinating when you go through meditations and you see the number of quotations from Heraclitus. Yeah, just this idea around change. How much do you think that really influences his philosophy and, and psychology of maybe how he's how he's totally. viewing the world?
1: It's his second favorite philosopher, right? Um, the uh, he tells us that first of all, in terms of the volume of quotations, um, it, we don't know for sure. It's kind of hard to attribute some of the quotes, but it looks like Marcus mainly quotes Epictetus, and then a close second is Heraclitus. So it seemed like his two favourite philosophers. Now, Heraclitus uh, was always a favourite of the Stoics. Cleanthes, the second head of the Stoic school, wrote several volumes about him, and so I think did one of his students, if I remember rightly. Epictetus mentions in passing that... He considers Heraclitus to be like a kind of near sage up there with uh, Socrates and Diogenes the Cynic, although he doesn't say that much more about him, at least in the discourses that survive. Um, but it's quite plausible that the Stoics had read earlier texts by some of the founders of the school about Heraclitus. In fact, the quotes that we have in Marcus Aurelius from Heraclitus, what we have to consider sometimes is where is he reading that? Is he reading... Heraclitus is on nature, or is he reading other books that quote it, which is perhaps more likely. So it may be that Marcus is getting those quotes from Cleanthes or from another Stoic text, right? Which would make the whole thing kind of hang together a lot more. There's also a passage where Marcus says that the essence of his philosophy consists in the slogan, um, which is. Um, the universe has changed, life is opinion. Um, so he condense, so there's six words in Greek. Um, so he condenses his philosophy down to these six words. And he explains to, he says quite explicitly, that the life is opinion part refers to this doctrine of Epictetus, that um, it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. So he means by life is opinion, not that everything is subjective. He would have disagreed with that but that the quality of our life emotionally is shaped by the value judgments that we hold. That's the Stoic doctrine that he's referring to. And then everything, uh, the universe has changed. Is the uh, Panta uh, doctrine of uh, Heraclitus, the, the doctrine of flux. Um, there's also a text, a weird text, by Justin Martyr, the Christian Martyr, um, where... It's the one, by the way, where he calls Marcus Aurelius Verisimus. So we know that this was a nickname he had as a child, but we also can see that he was still known by that name as an adult. Like So Marcus Aurelius... Sometimes you'll see this BS like online where people say maybe Marcus Aurelius wasn't really known as a philosopher or maybe he wasn't a Stoic. Marcus Aurelius was famous as a Stoic philosopher in his lifetime, for goodness sakes. Like that's that's one of the silliest things I've ever seen on, people try to debate online. So Justin Martyr calls him Verismas the philosopher in this official uh, letter addressing him. Like He was famous um, as a philosopher. Um, and in it, he talks a lot. Justin Martyr had studied Stoicism, uh, and he was critical of the Stoics. But at one point, he calls uh, Heraclitus a Stoic. Uh, which is really weird now it could be that he 's referring to a Stoic writer who happened to be called Heraclitus, but there 's some evidence in the text that he 's actually referring to the pre Socratic um, and what he maybe means by that is this guy 's kind of an honorary stoic like sure he 's a precursor of the Stoics, but the Stoics are so closely aligned with him why like, that he we may as well consider him part of the same philosophical. Tradition. That's I. We don't know for sure that that's what's meant, but it could be the case that Heraclitus was perceived as part of the Stoic uh, tradition. And so, this doctrine. Uh, to come back to the, your question, the uh, the doctrine of flux. It's like the Buddhist doctrine of um, uh, Anicchvada uh, of impermanence, um, except, but incidentally, the uh, the earliest. But the scriptures we have referring to that are 1st century AD or something like that mm. um, you know whereas uh, Heraclitus uh, is what 6th century BC or whatever um, you know far far earlier it's quite it's, there, here's another idea to rock the apple car it, it's not implausible that the Buddhists got this idea from the Greeks like, you know it, it's quite plausible in fact um, for all we know some people would like to think it might be the other way round, but it's possible that this doctrine originated in, uh, in the Greek-speaking world, uh, probably in the Middle East, and, uh, and perhaps travelled from there to, to India, uh, possibly. But this is central to Stoicism. Marx really goes on and on about it. He makes it uh, the centrepiece of his philosophy. If you're asking, you know, would this influence his psychology uh, and the way he conducted himself as emperor? I find it inconceivable that it wouldn't. Um, in the same way that, you know, uh, a, a devout Christian, um, somehow their life must be shaped and their actions must be shaped and their politics must be shaped by their religious uh, beliefs, if they're sincere. Uh, you know, Marcus, one of his main contemplations that he repeats multiple times in the meditations is actually to meditate on deceased Roman emperors. Um, he even says at one point that when he looks at his own image, which wouldn't be difficult because Fronto tells us there are images of Marcus Aurelius everywhere in the empire. He says some of them are not very good likenesses. He complains about it a bit, but he says they're all over the place. Like in all the shops, and like everybody at Rome has got a, like a picture of the emperor. Um, so he was surrounded by statues and paintings of himself and he says that when he lo- looks at his own image, he should think of deceased emperors from previous ages. So the memento mori. Um, so he was his contemplation of impermanence was very much focused on his position as emperor. Um, he talks about the only time he mentions Hadrian, his adoptive grandfather, is to say, do you remember that old dead guy? You know, remember what a big deal Hadrian was. Marcus Aurelius thought, do you remember what a big deal? Hadrian was a huge figure, like a huge character of a man, um, an unforgettable character, like a complex, multifaceted, um, larger-than-life figure. But Marcus, when he's writing the Meditations, knows military officers that have only ever seen statues of Hadrian and read about him in history books. How weird is that? So these guys would all be talking about Hadrian. And Marcus would think, you've you have never met him. Like, you see statues of him. I went boar hunting with him. I lived in his house for a while. <laughs> like, and now he's a character in history books. How weird is that? But Marcus uses that as a memento mori. That's his meditation. He's like, one day, pretty soon, I'm just going to be a statue. And a a chapter in a history book.
0: I'm really fascinated with this uh, article that you posted, I want to say, a few months back. And I've been excited to chat with you about it, about compassion and stoicism. And and maybe we can chat a bit about Marcus Aurelius. You brought up book two, which I'd love to spend a little bit of time going through uh, that first passage in book two. But could you speak to what led you to, to write this, you know, long, well-written article on compassion and stoicism?
1: Because oh, there were a lot of things that I saw. Stoicism is a victim of its own success, currently. Mm-hmm. Um, like, everything becomes a victim of its own success, eventually, like if it becomes popular, and and so, like, when I first got into stoicism, I was into stoicism before it was cool, like people, you know, like to say about their favorite bands and stuff like that. You know, I, I started studying stoicism over 30 years ago now or something like that. And uh, I started writing about it and teaching it, like, about a quarter of a century, you now, like 25 years ago. And at that time, there there weren't, it wasn't popular. There weren't really big online communities and things like that. And it, it was different. It was very, very different. The first big struggle I had was that people thought it was complete nonsense that there were psychological techniques in Stoicism. Like, so I used to give talks on that to psychotherapists, and people would be like, "That's not true. The Stoics didn't have psychological techniques." So I wrote a book. That's why I wrote a book about it called "The Philosophy of CBT." Um, and now no one cares about it. It's such a weird thing in life that you start off arguing with everybody about something, and then 20 years later, everyone just kind of agrees with you. And it's almost disappointing. You think, I kind of miss those days. I used to get to argue with people about whether the Stoics are psychological. Now everyone's like, yeah, obviously they did. So that 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 battle was won, apparently. Like, you know, while I was sleeping one day, I woke up and suddenly everybody <laughs> agreed with me. Um but it shows how much things can change now. So the next one, it's the same thing, right? Now people think stoicism uh, is, you know, I'll say online, stoicism is all about as a philosophy of love, and people will say that's ridiculous. Are you joking? And no, I'm not. Like I think it's ridiculous that they don't see that. Like of course it's a, you know, it's as ridiculous uh, as the people that didn't believe there was any. Uh, there were any psychological techniques in Stoicism. They haven't read, like William Blake said of the Bible, we both read the Bible day and night, but you read black where I read white. I I find it mind-boggling that anyone could read Marcus Aurelius and not notice that on virtually every page of the Meditations, he bangs on and on obsessively about natural affection, uh, brotherly love, cosmopolitan ethics, social virtue uh and overcoming anger like he he's mainly focused on the interpersonal virtues and emotions um, in the in the meditations it says he's he's more interested in it for example than Seneca or uh, Epictetus are but stoicism um, is is a philosophy of love um, we're told that the patron god of Zeno's republic was Eros the god of love like uh, from the outset like this was a central aspect of, of stoicism, it was known um, for being a, a kind of philosophy of love uh, you could say compassion or kindness now the problem here, one of the problems is that um, and this is something maybe people don't talk about that much in some ways people kind of got past it in other ways they haven't the translation, there's a problem of translation with ancient texts Now, some things can be translated unproblematically, but the hardest thing to translate is terminology regarding emotions because the emotional vocabulary that the ancient Greeks use um, is different from the emotional vocabulary that we use. Um, They group things together that we distinguish and they distinguish things that we group together. Um, they use words in ways that have connotations that, that we don't really understand very easily. So the hard, one of the hardest translation jobs is to translate emotional language from ancient Greek into, into modern English. Um, and that, I think that's partly why some of this is lost. I'll give you one very specific example, right? So what are the cardinal virtues? Like wisdom, justice, temperance and fortitude, right? Now... Some of those are more problematic than others. Um, The Greek word for temperance, uh, or moderation, or however you want to translate it, is means something kind of different, like it almost means mindfulness in Greek. It's a very nuanced word actually that we just can't easily translate into English. It sometimes is thought to just mean a kind of practical moral wisdom. Um, it does mean moderation and temperance, but it also has... What that translation misses is it has this kind of connotation of self-awareness that's kind of central. Uh, that's brought out well in one of the Platonic dialogues where Socrates says that sophrosune, what we call temperance, is exemplified by boys in the wrestling school who, rather than running around and screaming by like, making a lot of noise, are quiet and walk slowly. Mm-hmm. Like, is that yeah. temperance? Like, it's more like a kind of self-awareness. Uh, they're aware of their surroundings, they're appropriate, their conduct's more appropriate, and so on. That's what the Greeks mean by sophrosune. like a kind of self-awareness, like being self-possessed and stuff. But the word for justice is the one that I'm really talking about. Uh, that said, um, the kaiosone, that does not mean justice, uh, really. Uh, it kind of does and it doesn't. Like, it's a broader term in Greek. Um, it would be better translated as social virtue if that, if it wasn't for the fact that that sounds like you know like social justice or something like that today. But it it really means uh, morality in the interpersonal sphere. Like it's a pretty broad term. So mothers have the kaiosuneta towards their children. So we wouldn't really talk about a mother being just towards her kids. That would seem mm. weird. Also, people exhibit the kaiosuneta towards the gods. So we don't really. It would seem strange. It's like stretching the definition to say that we're being just towards God or something. That would sound like it was a figure of speech, like it was metaphorical or something. Um, So that's a bad translation, right? Now, the Stoics tell us that the kaiosune has two main elements. One of them is fairness, um, which is closer to what we mean by justice today. The other one is kindness, which is not really part of what we mean by justice today. Um, So Dekaiosune includes compassion, kindness, uh, goodwill towards other people. That got excised from Stoicism because of this sketchy translation. Simple as that, right? So you could, if you wanted, as a thought experiment, go through the Stoic texts and every time they mention justice, replace it with kindness, because that's not all they mean. Or you could replace it with kindness stroke fairness and see how that changes the significance of the text that you're reading. Because in Greek, that's what—that's the connotation that it would have, right? Also, for people that say that they don't see the significance of love to Stoicism, <clears throat> um, this sounds like a joke, but uh, I mean it quite seriously, right? Um, the The Stoics spoke Greek. Uh, even Marcus Aurelius, uh, Greek is a language of philosophy. Seneca and Cicero had tried to do philosophy in Latin, but it didn't really catch on. Marcus is still doing philosophy in Greek, right? Marcus mm. is completely fluent in Greek. Not only fluent, he's a master of Greek rhetoric, very high level. Um, and so when they say philosophy, they say philosophia. Like, they they don't say philosophy. Uh, philosophia in Greek just means love of wisdom. Or it also has a connotation of friendship. Uh, this word today would mean more like friendship in modern Greek. Um, and so, philosophy, like it's often the case that when a, a word is carried over into another language, it starts to sound like a technical term, like a, a kind of abstraction. It loses its original connotation. In Greek, they mean it literally. Like they ju- they don't say "let's go do some philosophy." Like they say, "like let's go, let's go study love of wisdom." They talk all the time about how much they love wisdom, like, and that's what those are the words they're using. That they mean it literally, like you know, whenever they talk about philosophy, they say they're not saying philosophy. They're saying we love w- wisdom, you know. We're, we're training ourselves to love wisdom, like we we lose that connotation just because we make it into a, uh, you know, a kind of technical sounding term in the English language. But they're using it with its original literal meaning, um, so it's pervasive. It's in the very name of the subject itself. Is all about loving. What is wisdom? It's the it's the quintessential virtue, um, and so it's synonymous with love of virtue. Who in their right mind would say that stoicism isn't about the love of virtue? Like that's self evident, right? Like the whole thing is about cultivating love of virtue. And sharing it with other people, like it's in the very name, philosophy itself, and it, that always was the, the the connotation. But our our translation of it, it means that we lose this nuance and we sanitize philosophy and we turn it into something that is kind of inert in a way compared to to what it originally was. Um, so I, I I'd say a little bit more about this, like the. It's got to do with the distinction between lowercase Stoicism and capital S Stoicism. So again, the the single most common misconception about Stoicism online is that people confuse Stoic philosophy with the personality trait of Stoicism. So we normally distinguish them by writing one with a capital S and the other in a lowercase s. So lowercase Stoicism is a modern idea of an unemotional coping style. Um, that people describe as having a stiff upper lip. And so literally, stiff upper lip means that you're angry or anxious, so your lip would be trembling, but you're kind of freezing at your eyes. It means the same thing as having a poker face, basically. It means concealing or suppressing unpleasant or embarrassing emotions would be a more technical, psychological definition of it. Now, that's loosely based on the historical idea of Stoic philosophy, but it is not the same thing as Stoic philosophy. In fact, it's the crudest possible conception of an emotional coping style. And the reason that it's really important to keep these two things distinct is that there's a fairly large body of modern, not only psychological, but also health research from many different research teams working independently in different languages around the world using different research tools that converge on the conclusion that's well known like, in psychology, the stoicism, the coping style, or personality trait, the trait-like coping style, um, is toxic, to use the word that the kids like. You know, it, it's bad for you. Like, and in fact, ironically, because the Stoics love paradoxes, lowercase stoicism people strongly believe is a sign of strength and emotional resilience. Actually, in reality, the opposite. Like, people who have lowercase stoicism are emotionally fragile individuals. Like, it's a form of psychological weakness. And by that, I don't mean some sort of value judgment or something, like I'm poo-pooing it. Like, I mean, literally, they're more likely to have an emotional breakdown. Like, they're more likely to develop clinical depression or clinical anxiety disorders over the long term. That's what the research shows, right? For a bunch of fairly, actually, reasons that are actually fairly obvious, right? So lowercase stoicism is a form of emotional fragility and vulnerability as far as researchers are concerned. Like, not just even a couple of, like, lots of different research teams all working independently. They'll go, oh yeah, this is obviously the case. Like, all of the data kind of, points in this direction sometimes it works like if you're in the dentist and you're getting your teeth drilled it might be good for acute pain for a short period of time to distract yourself or have a poker face or just try and kind of suppress it maybe that can work temporarily it doesn't work um permanently it doesn't work for the long term and it particularly doesn't work in in, in relationships like for interpersonal conflict, it becomes highly problematic uh, and leads to emotional vulnerability. Right, backfires big time, as as we like to say. Now, ancient stoicism is a whole different ballgame. Like it has a much more nuanced theory of emotion, which actually became the inspiration for cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the leading form of evidence-based psychotherapy. And in fact, modern cognitive therapy, which is based on stoicism. Um, it, Stoicism is described by the founders of CBT as the philosophical inspiration for what they do well, I, I could talk about this in a, a lot more length but you know, take my word for it for the time being that the, the <laughs> CBT is based on Stoicism theoretically and also in terms of the practice um, but uh, what people may not realise is that in modern psychology um, there's a kind of emerging field of what we call resilience training um, where, it, based on the principle that prevention is better than cure, so psychotherapists like me are Johnny Come Latelys. Like right? by the time we see people, it's already too late. Why? Because you've got a diagnosis before you get sent to a psychotherapist, right? You've already got a problem by that point. Now, what would be better would be if you just never came across a cross my threshold in the first place, right? Like if we got you, you got in early. Got, you know, if we got them when they were kids, like, and prevented people from becoming emotionally fragile in the first place, developing clinical depression and anxiety, like, when I, psych like me arrive in the scene, like, it's remedial. There's already a problem. What we want is preventative, like, psychological interventions. That would be better, like, that makes people more robust, uh, in, in, in relation to stress and adversity. Um, so prevention is much better than cure. <clears throat> stoicism is the great, uh, great hope, as the holy grail like, of preventative training like, because it's much more focused on permanent uh, trait-like personality change. Um, stoicism is sticky. CBT techniques people learn, they use for a couple of years, the research shows, and then often they'll forget about them. So they relapse sometimes, right? Depends on the nature of the problem, right? But they're not very good at continuing to use the techniques permanently. Um, Stoicism is like a religion. It's a philosophy of life. People do it permanently. like So that's a big deal in terms of building permanent emotional resilience. So Stoicism can like inspired CBT. CBT is the main influence on re- modern resilience training, right? Um, resilience training is good for you it helps you to become more emotionally robust low-case stoicism is the complete opposite like, it makes you weak and fragile and vulnerable Cyclops, they're two opposite things right? so I've probably laboured that a bit that's because if we go back to where we started you go at the end of this listening to this podcast, gentle listener and go on the internet you'll find it's chock-a-block with people that confuse these two things. Like they confuse chalk and cheese. Like and they're they're complete polar opposites. So that's how confused a lot of the conversations online about stoicism have become. And so we that's why we, we need to kind of like be quite clear and quite firm in separating them. Now, come back, you mentioned you were talking about compassion, right? So you're like, how did we go onto emotional resilience and all that kind of stuff, right? Because the people that think Stoicism is about having a stiff upper lip, are typically the people that think it's unemotional and has nothing to do with compassion or kindness or any of that pro-social stuff, right? Um, Whereas the the Stoics believed that their philosophy helped people to cultivate um, healthy relationships, um, pro-social attitudes uh, as opposed to anti-social attitudes, that it reversed feelings of alienation from society, and other people in general that its main emotional focus was as a remedy for anger hatred and spite today because we're all self-centred and slightly narcissistic self-improvement online is obsessed with feelings of anxiety um, because people are scared right? but there's very little discussion about uh, self-improvement in relation to anger unless you're a Stoic because that's the number one thing that the Stoics thought we needed to do something about. Like, the Stoics think, sure, anxiety and depression are a problem, but you need to deal with your anger first. Like, because anger is the royal road to self-improvement. Like, we are so far removed from that today that half of the self-improvement nonsense that people consume online actually, in many ways, contributes to and fuels anger and hatred like, if you're not careful, I'm thinking of a number of leading self-improvement gurus today um, that seem to me to say and do things that actually encourage anger and antisocial attitudes um, among their followers online. The Stoics were dead against that. Um, They thought, if you want self-improvement, buddy, you need to do something about your anger first. Like, how far are we from that? Look on YouTube at the comments. Like, all the trolling and the flaming and stuff that goes on on self-improvement videos, it's crazy, right? It's crazy. But the Stoics would be baffled by this. Um, Marcus was mainly concerned with overcoming his own anger. The opening sentence of the meditations refers to his grandfather's freedom from anger. That's the opening note that the book begins with. And then it continues in that vein. It's mainly anger uh, out of all of the emotions that he's concerned with. In Meditation's Book 11, Passage 18, he lists 10 psychological strategies for overcoming anger. That's phenomenal. If I was teaching, I used to teach psychotherapists, psychologists and counselors. If I said to a classroom, I can tell you right now, because like, I used to do stuff like this every day. I'd say, hey, you guys, what, how many strategies can you think of for overcoming anger that you could use with clients or whatever? I don't know, they'd come up with like two or three, Right. And maybe if they brainstormed, they'd come up with five or six. Marcus has 10. Not only does he know them by heart, he repeats them, applies them in different ways many, many times throughout the meditations. But he can also just rattle a list off. Like, he's studied this in far more depth than many, most psychologists, counsellors, self-improvement teachers today. It's phenomenal. Um, It's awe-inspiring, actually, uh, to me to see that. Like, the, the, the level of sophistication. Um, so then, you know, again, we have this lowercase stoicism, which is, you know, like, um, self-improvement for idiots, right? Like, it, it's the stupidest possible way of coping with your emotions. So you feel anger, what do you do? Sort of ignore it or, like, try, try and pretend that you're not feeling it, conceal it from other people and stuff like that. Like, it doesn't work. Like... What you should do is identify what the beliefs are that are causing you to feel angry and then question whether they're actually justified or not. That's what the Stoics want us to do. You can't do that. Like so if you're suppressing or concealing them. So lowercase stoicism very simply is what we would class today as a form of experiential avoidance. It's an avoidant way of coping. Like, you know, it's fear driven actually. Like or complete polar opposite of
0: philosophy in general and, and particularly. Uh, particularly of Stoicism. How about this idea of us misunderstanding things? As you mentioned, the lowercase s, capital um, S Stoic. But what about a broader kind of philosophy of life? If you think of maybe Buddhism, Christianity, the Epicureanism, we can kind of misunderstand what it is at the heart of it. Do you see many of these philosophies of life as ultimately about kindness and compassion at the heart. Maybe you can debate which is best, but how do you see the connection between just any sort of wisdom tradition and kindness and compassion?
1: I think it's absolutely integral to Stoicism. Seneca, at one point, in On Clemency, which is an embarrassing letter that he wrote, Um, like awful, awful toadying nonsense that he wrote about the Emperor, sycophantic letter that he wrote about the Emperor Nero um, sorry fans of Seneca like, but <laughs> um, you know, Nero was a psychopath I and Seneca wrote this speech claiming that he was virtually a sage, but in it he says um, some interesting things he he says um, that stoicism is of all the philosophies um, the the one that's most focused on compassion and kindness and, and clemency, which is what he's talking about, right? Um, it's it's integral to stoicism. It's one of the cardinal virtues. Like it's the 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 cardinal virtues. You know, it's funny because people sometimes ask about them, like they're kind of mysterious or something. They're they're incredibly simple, right? So. Socrates uh, introduced this idea or popularized it anyway. The, we call the cognitive theory of emotion, which is the absolute. A lot of people that are into Stoicism today don't even seem to understand this. But it, this is the underlying emotional philosophy of Stoicism: that all of our emotions are cognitive in nature. Like, I mean, this is hugely important. You can't really understand Stoicism at all unless you kind of get that. And th- and it's also why it's popular today because it influenced cognitive therapy, right? So. This idea was introduced. That means that wisdom is the quintessential um, virtue. Um, like the other virtues are all forms of wisdom. Um, so wisdom applied to our relationships to people individually or collectively is the uh, as is a social virtue, um, moral wisdom. The Stoics are talking about. There were some philosophers that believed the goal of life. was just wisdom in general, like knowledge. Um, Plato's Academy kind of leaned more in that direction, like knowledge for its own sake. And so the Stoics thought that was obviously wrong. Um, They thought some knowledge is useless, right? Like, uh, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or whatever. So the Stoics thought that there's a specific, and Socrates talks about this actually in some of the Platonic dialogues, but it seems like you know Plato's academy ended up being as we say academic, and certainly other philosophical uh, branches or other branches of philosophy became perhaps even more academic or scholastic um, the Socrates says look the, there's some types of wisdom are more useful than others it's really a kind of moral wisdom that's the goal of life. Mm. It's knowing right from wrong. It's understanding what the most important things in life are, and 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 understanding the realization that that things that other people believe are important maybe aren't actually as important as they seem to think they are. That'd be my definition of, so I'd explain wisdom, philosophical wisdom to a child. Why like, it's understanding what's most important in life and realizing that some things aren't as important as people make them out to be. That guides everything, and you take that wisdom and apply it to the social sphere. It becomes justice, for want of a better word, like social virtue, de Casinae. But so those are the two most important cardinal virtues. Um, wisdom, the intellectual core, justice, the kind of wisdom applied to, to life and relationships. But, you know, a problem is that we have fears and desires, and they get in the way of living with wisdom and justice. So in order to live consistently with wisdom and justice, you need to sometimes act contrary to your appetites, cravings, and desires. That would require temperance, moderation, or why like, um Or you'd need to overcome your fears and act contrary to them in order to exercise wisdom and justice. You're going to need fortitude or courage in order to do that. Um, so, you know, like I say, the virtues... Are simpler, I think, than people realise. They're kind of common sense, in a way. Um, but justice, the is really... Marcus, at one point, even says it's the most important virtue, because it's just wisdom applied to life and to relationships. But as I said earlier, that term en- encompasses what you would call compassion. The Stoics would never use that word, because the the English word actually means to experience passion along with someone, which is exactly what the Stoics... You know, don't want us to do this it's precisely the wrong term etymologically.
0: Mm.
1: It implies um, co-suffering. Like, I mean, passion is, the, our word passion, um, the, the Greek word pathos is the root of our word passion, but it's also the root of our word pathology. Um, so the, the Greek word, again, it's hard to translate into English because it, it means pathological emotions would be a better way of translating it. But it also encompasses desires. So I, I can a kind of better, more rounded translation uh, of pathos would be pathological desires and emotions. Like So a, or a simpler explanation would be all the stuff that psychotherapy tries to fix, like mm. pretty much what they're talking about when they're using that word. Um, but for the Stoics to overcome emotions, contrary to what even many academics have said, the Stoics do not believe in the extirpation um, of all emotion. That's nonsense. Of course they don't. Like the complete elimination of emotions. Like the Stoics explicitly state that that's not what they mean. What they are talking about, as modern therapists would say, is the transmutation of pathological emotions into healthy ones. They have a whole system for classifying, for goodness sakes, healthy emotions. They call them the eupathei, the healthy passions or healthier alternative to passions. And they include, central uh, to that classification, various different types of compassion, or kindness, uh, or goodwill, or however you want to translate it, towards other people. Um, and what they mean by that is incredibly simple. Like, the Stoics think that anger, um, to a large extent, can be understood as the desire for revenge. Like that's the classic formula for for anger. Maybe it doesn't cover everything that we would mean by anger. Again, because it's hard to translate emotions from one language to another, right? But a large to a large extent, particularly interpersonal anger, has got to do with desire for. Once you, you want to hurt somebody, why like, uh, you want to make them suffer? Why like, it's desire for revenge because they deserve it, you think? Why? Like, um, so ancient philosophers were pretty much in agreement and that's more or less the the essence of anger, right? So the contrary, the Stoics had this idea that there were um, remedial emotions that are the contrary, the rational alternative to these, and they kind of they describe Marcus describes them as antidotes for the unhealthy emotions, the healthy to, to to cultivate the healthy emotions and in, directly instead. Now it's true that only the ideal sage could really perfectly embody pure love and kindness, but that does not stop. Um, Aspirants, like students of philosophy, from attempting to cultivate healthy emotions directly. Again, the meditations and the other Stoic texts are full of references. Like, how could you not notice? Why like, they're full, chock a block with references to people actively trying to to cultivate healthy emotions, such as kindness and compassion and brotherly love and, and all that kind of palaver. Um, so the the Stoics, the the essence of it, really rather than desire for revenge or wanting to hurt or punish other people, would be wanting to help other people. It's the Mm. desire to help other people. Not by giving them money or food or a pat on the back, because that would be a naive, superficial interpretation of what it means. But a philosophical interpretation of what it means to help somebody would be to do the best that you can um, to share wisdom with them, basically. The most important thing in the universe. The clue's in the name. Philosophy means love of wisdom. Like, so if we take it seriously, to help other people would be to share wisdom with them. Now, people who have read the first couple of sentences of the Enkiridian will tell you, like, you can't control other people. Like, They're outside your sphere of control. But that doesn't mean that you can't act towards them with the reserve clause the stoics think that we should try to do our best in the world while simultaneously accepting that the outcome is not under our control if the stoics thought it was pointless trying to help other people because we can't control their opinions and stuff you know what they would never have bothered doing writing books or (laughs) giving lectures like for goodness sakes like, so this is another, so people go, well, there's no point trying to help other people because that's outside my control. Why do you think they wrote all those books? Like, they walked up and down giving <laughs> lectures all day. Like, why do you think you're sitting here now reading Marcus Aurelius and reading, uh, he's a bad example because that wasn't meant for publication, but he did give lectures, allegedly about his philosophy. Um, why? And he got involved in politics, obviously why do you think you're reading Seneca? Like, why do you think you're reading Epictetus? These, like, these guys wrote a bit of philosophy. They gave speeches and uh, wrote books about it. They taught. Zeno walked up and down in the Agora, in the uh, teaching students all day long because he was trying to help particularly young, uh, young Athenians um, to help reform their characters and improve them. And the desire to do that, the desire to share wisdom and educate other people in a meaningful way—you know—to make other people more emotionally resilient, to to help improve them with the reserve clause while accepting that it's not entirely under your control—is what the Stoics mean by kindness. Marcus Aurelius built a temple to beneficence, which means kindness, philanthropy. That's how important it was to him. The historians record the fact that he built a temple to it. They thought, this guy's obsessed with helping other people. (laughs) It's it's a major part of his ideology. It didn't come as a shock to them because that's what Stoics do. The other schools of philosophy stayed at home more. The Stoics, um, the reason we know so much about them is because they were politically engaged. Um, the you know, Chrysippus Chris said the wise man engages in public life if nothing prevents him, because he's pro-social. Like, he cares about other people. He wants to help. It doesn't mean he gets in what we would call politics today, but he tries to help society in some shape or form. He's fundamentally philanthropic in the original sense of the word. He loves mankind. Marcus takes us to a kind of existential mystical dimension throughout the meditations, not only, you know, is he thinking about these specific acts of like we should go out and we should help people and stuff, but at a deep I would say an existential level, Marcus thinks he says the moment you get angry with someone or hate them, you you're like a branch severed from a tree. Like mm. you you separated yourself from a whole. The, the the Stoics were pantheists, holists. They they thought it's it's real simple like you know fundamentally you're like a cell within the bigger organism and you know like all, a lot of your problems are caused by this feeling of separateness or alienation would be uh, the best word to use really um, that we use today Marcus's meditations you reread the whole of Marcus's meditations from that perspective the entire thing is an attempt to overcome feelings of alienation uh, he wants to feel at one um, with himself with mankind and with the universe as a whole. Um, this is also originally how virtue was defined by Zeno. It's uh, is, is overcoming alienation and cultivating this sense of, of oneness, because the, the Stoics took their pantheism seriously. They thought that what was most important, what was most sacred, was this vision of the, the whole as something uh, unified. And the sense of separateness, of us versus them, was, the, the, in a sense, the root kind of, of all of our, our problems.
0: Well, this has been great, Donald. Our time has flown by. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm looking forward to the getting the graphic novel here in, in the future. Where would you point people interested in, in learning more about you and some of the topics we discussed today?
1: Well, they can just go to my website, which is just my name. It says donaldrobertson.name instead of .com. It's .name. And if they go there, they'll find all of my social media stuff and all of uh, the books and stuff the graphic novels and uh, all of the a lot of free courses and many podcasts that I've done, <laughs> including your own, um, and they can find out about stoicism and people can get in touch with me via the website. Like I get emails uh, from people all the time asking me questions about stoicism and things that I'm always happy to, to answer. I did a, I do a lot of events about stoicism. I did one recently for high school kids and it blew me away, like because they were all in a sports hall. Um, and they were like talking about how they'd be doing a class at high school and they'd been reading the meditations and it really blew my mind because I thought, man, you know, when I was like 15 or whatever, like I was at at school, I read stuff like that on my own but I can't imagine doing like a whole course at school where you get to study Marcus Aurelius, that was just like not on not on our radar my as kids I can you know I can, we were studying kind of accounting and math uh, algebra and things like you know that like, <laughs> was like, I can't imagine having a class of marks it really is that would have been amazing and it would have potentially yeah. you know transformed um, people's lives uh, so you know if people have any questions they can feel free to to get in touch with me via the website
0: Well, I really appreciate you being so gracious with your time, not only the first time, but this time and and many other platforms that you come on and share your wisdom. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.